you know, later in Job's life, I could kind of hear him singing that song. My Redeemer is faithful and true. God is faithful and, and we praise him. But you know, I also hear him singing that song earlier in his life. Kind of at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter two. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. My Redeemer is faithful and true. That's what he believed, even though his eyes didn't show him that. That's an example to us for being faithful. And uh, the, the text reads, the steadfastness, being steadfast in our trials. Um, Wednesday night is part of that, isn't it? It's easy to stay home on Wednesday night. There's so much going on. It seems like one of the best nights to get some rest, man. Good games come on, good movies come on, just good sleep weather, whatever you want. It, it happens on Wednesday, middle of the week, um, yeah, or before when you're preparing. So it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge to be faithful. Um, but we are faithful because God is faithful. He requires that of us, and we are a small measure of what he is, but we are encouraged to be faithful. Then we encourage each other to be faithful. So let's do that. Prayer is so important um, for, for God's work. Prayer really is an exercise of our faith, just like we talked about um, um, <clears throat> Job exercising his faith. Even though he didn't see it, he said, I know God, God is going to come through. Um, I'm in a bind right now, but God is going to come through. Prayer is an exercise of our faith. It's saying, Lord, we, we don't just... Um, bring idle words into the, to the air, and they vanished into nowhere. We're praying to a living, holy, righteous, almighty God who hears and who answers our prayers, and it's, it's very much concerned with us. And so it's an exercise of our faith to, to pray. I do believe God allows that faith to be exercised so that um, we don't always see results. We don't always even see the evidence of him listening sometimes. Seems like it's quiet. Uh, you know, the crickets are chirping sometimes when, when we're praying and in deep need. But, but God is hearing us. He, he's promised that in his word. And he's shown that through the, our experience with him. Tonight, I'd like us to take a look at Psalm, um, tw Psalm 63. We sang Psalm 23. That's on my mind. Psalm 63 what I'd like to look at. Last week we looked at 62. This week we look at 63. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
Let's just pause right there because that's one flavor of the song and then we get into another flavor in the other verses. But let's meditate a little bit, focus a little bit on this flavor. The psalmist is, is, is praising God and he's, he's showing his, his desperate need for God. My soul thirsts. Um, that's that's, that's an interesting thought. He's using the physical thing uh, of hunger and thirst that we have, if we're healthy, we have every day. Say you can go, um, you know, three days uh, without water at the most and then you die. It, it, that's all you can do. Um, but he says, my soul, not, not my, my, my physical being, my soul is like my physical body without water. It desperately needs you. Later on, he says, um, um, I cling to you. Where is that? Verse 8, my soul clings to you. That, that term of clinging, I can imagine a person on a cliff of a rock and hanging over the edge, and with all of his strength, he's hanging on to, to that rock. And he's saying, that's how I do with God. I, I cling to him. I, 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 I join myself with him with all that I have. And so he's expressing that um, our hearts need to, need to express that. We need to be reminded of that expression because we live in a world that thinks they don't need God at all. In fact, they'd rather act like God doesn't exist. How different it is for us as Christians to actively play that out in our lives, actively act like we need God in desperate ways. And, you know, I think when times are good, it's really hard to do that. When things are just, not just good, but just, just rolling on, it's easy to forget our desperate need of God. And so the psalmist is reminded of that. And when you think about that, that's why we can thank God for those desperate times in our life because they help us realize our need for God. And there's no one else who can help us in those desperate needs apart from God. God can send other people to help, but unless he does it, unless he, he does the work, life uh, will not be sustained apart from him. So the psalmist um, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I have to admit, I've never been so hungry that I had fainted because my body was weak. I've always had food to eat that I could get. Now, there's times when I willingly didn't, didn't eat for some reason, um, but I've always had that abundance of resources around me. Think about what it would be like to not have that. He says, my flesh faints for you. I'm about to die, God, if I don't have you and have more of you, is, is what he's expressing. He says, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. So he's saying, when I come to worship, I let my heart reflect on that need. We sing songs today that should guide us into biblical thinking of who we are, who God is, and what our need of God is. And we, we need to hang on to those songs, those reminders, and come to worship in that spirit. The truth is, you know, we, we, we come 
um, in our advanced technology. Uh, we have our cars. We have our clothing. Um, you know, um, I can buy clothing now that if, if I shovel the snow and I work up a sweat, well, it will absorb the sweat so, so that it evaporates and I don't get cold from the damp clothes anymore. So we, we have all these kind of things that protect us and, and, and help us. But the fact is we need to realize that we still need God and that we are desperate in our need for him. And that's what the psalmist is, is bringing himself to. And he says, when I come into your sanctuary, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm reminding myself of who you are and my need for you. And it says, um, I'm beholding your power and your glory. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So praise then is this active thing that we do. We direct our hearts towards praise. Um, uh, my heart is, my, my, the simple nature that I have is not prone to praise, or at least not prone to praise God. Prone to praise myself or even praise others, but it's not, it's not prone to praise God. We have to direct our hearts to praise. Um, and so we do that in our worship. Um, people, people think, I've heard this say before, well, Pastor, you know, I'm not in the mood. I have to leave services. I have to leave worship. Should I, should I go ahead anyway, or should I excuse myself from worship? And I always think, oh, wait a minute. Every moment you come here, you have to direct yourself towards praise. Um, now, some days you might be high, and some days you might be low. On those high days, it's easier to be in a mood of worship. But praise is something that we have to direct, and we ought to direct our hearts uh, towards praise. So it's not just forget about your troubles and come praise. It is in your troubles, realize who God really is, and direct your heart to the truth that brings you to praise. So he says, when I come in your sanctuary, I'm realizing your power, your glory, your love, and all of a sudden, as those things uh, uh, come up, stir up in me, they will stir up praise when I'm reminded of that truth. Um, and especially when I put that truth in perspective of what's going on in my life. I will come to worship and to praise God. I must come and worship and praise him. So my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, he says in verse 4. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He's talking about active worship and active praise, um, expressive praise towards God. It's what we do and we direct ourselves to do because God is worthy um, of that worship and of that praise. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And so he finds out that once he begins to think about that, once he begins to reflect on that, he doesn't have to force himself anymore um, because God is worthy of all of that. It's not like we have to tell ourselves a lie and do it. You know, I, I remember as a little kid, I had to eat lima beans. You know, you had to sit at the plate, you sit at the table until you finish all the green stuff spinach or lima beans. And so I would have to convince myself that it's okay to eat this. One thing that convinced me that it was okay to eat it was my dad over there with the belt in his hand. Well, if you don't eat this, 
you're going to suffer the consequences. So I, I, it was easy to convince it's better to swallow the lima bean than to fill the belt. So that, that was easy. But I also had to convince myself that if I eat it fast, I ain't going to taste it. But that's okay with one. But it's when like 12 or 14 of those spread out on your plate, eventually you're going to taste it. So we sometimes, we come to something hard, we almost try to convince ourselves of something that's not true. You know, like, okay, I'm just going to ignore it, and then I can eat it. Well, we don't have to do that with God. We don't have to convince ourselves of something that isn't true. We have to convince ourselves of what is actually true and what is really meaningful, and then we go and we worship him. So it's not faking it. It's not going through the motions. It's reflecting on what really is true and who really is worthy of praise, and then we praise him. God is not asking anybody to, to fake it and, and do it. He says, worship him in spirit and in truth. Look what he does. He reflects at night, verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed. You sometimes get fearful at night. I know I do. I've had times with that. It's not a regular thing, but I've had times when you go like, oh, let me get my thoughts together because they're racing and they're going over here and that's just a dangerous area to go in. I have to refocus those thoughts and hone them back in and, and focus them on the right thing and, and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No matter what happens to me, even if I can imagine the worst thing, I am in Christ, I belong to God, and so this life is just a moment. I will spend eternity with him. Besides that, he is with me in this life. He is here. He's a very present help in my time of trouble. And regardless of how I feel or how my thoughts race, I slow them down and I, I reflect on that truth. Who is this God? So he says, I, I remember you upon my bed. I meditate on you in the night, in the watches of the night for, not something I have to make up, but because of who you are. For you have been my help. No matter how young we are or, or, or what our present experience is in life, we can reflect and realize and think in our life, in our life, that God has helped us in great ways. Yes, for salvation. I, I remember I used to have conversations with classmates all the time, and, and you begin to realize I, I, was, I came to know Christ at whatever age that was. But way before then, God had his hand on my life. Otherwise, I could have died. I could have suffered some sickness. I could have suffered some violence, su uh, suffered some accident. In some kind of way, before I came to consciously know God and been apart from God for all of eternity. So he was you know, Brian is speaking on election in, in Sunday school, and you get this sense that God has orchestrated over me all of my life, not just, okay, I got saved at whatever age, and now he's been a part of my life. No, he, he's been doing that way before. And so I, I, I can reflect on that, for you have been my help. So I remember being a young boy in, in church and thinking, I hear my father preach and hear, Older Christians give testimony, and I'm, I'm like, man, I got nothing to say like that. I don't have that kind of life experience like they've had, that God has saved me from this and this and this and this. Well, of course, now I'm older, and I can look back on that. 
But even then, I could see that God had tremendously poured his grace out in my life. And as I began to reflect and open my eyes, I began to, to, to realize that even as a young boy, wow, God, why me? That was the big question. Why me? Why have you poured yourself out on me this way? So he, he meditates on that in those tough times and in the night when it's quiet and other thoughts are competing with your mind uh, to captivate you. Verse 7, you have been my help in the shadow of your wings. Remember, we used that picture before in, in, in Psalms and uh, actually in uh, Deuteronomy, we saw that picture, the shadow of his wings, how God has guided his, his people Israel. It's saying, I've been under your protection all my life. All my life. That same thing is true for you. And we can rejoice in him. Now he changes uh, mood in verse 9, 10, 11. So let me just read those verses. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. <laughs> That's a quite a change to, to me. But I think it's natural. He's saying because of who God is and how he's, he's protected me, how he's called me, um, how I long for him because how good he is, Anybody who comes up against me, they, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in trouble. My enemies will be in trouble. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. <laughs> Saying, God's going to bring somebody to, 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 to fight that battle. It might be me, myself, or it might be some other friend with me. But uh, watch out you come up against me, they shall be a portion for jackals. <laughs> you know what that means. It's like roadkill, found dead on the road. The animals can't carry them off for their meals. It says, don't, don't mess with God's people. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so here's a reflection on our worship towards God. Meditate on that. Um, take that with you as you go in prayer today. And uh, that God, that God's uh, presence and his experience guide your thoughts and bring you to praise in him. Good evening, saints. Just thinking about the fact that Jesus brought the Sermon of the Mount and if you really look at it as a sermon, it's very uh, it's very interesting. We only we don't have many words of Jesus. We may think we do because when we read the Bible, it seems like it's a lot. But if you could read all the words of Jesus in the whole Bible, maybe in an hour or two, and this may be one of the biggest chunks besides when he just sits with his disciples and John at the end. It's just not a whole lot. And this is all in one setting. This is public ministry. So it's fitting for us to meditate on it considering that we put the words of Jesus first. Remember this, that we are saved by faith. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. I believe that all parts of 
salvation, which we're learning about in Sunday school, they're activated by God and they are spurred on by faith. So we talk about our regeneration or we talk about growing in God's truth or God's love. Nothing more important than just meditating, clearing our minds of the things that so easily beset us. I think oftentimes we can get distracted. And so this morning I was listening to somebody who was talking about activating the power of their mind by meditating and things like that. And it sounded to me like a lot of what he was saying was good, but he didn't go far enough. He was like, you got to clear out these thoughts. You got to focus on what your end goal is. What is the end goal? And what's a worthy end goal? And to what degree should you be willing to go to to get to that end goal? These questions don't get answered, and I think those are the biggest answers that you should have. One of the reasons that I think we take for granted as Christians is we know where we're going, and we have a purpose in life. And I kind of, the analogy that I give to it is almost like in Sunday school, if I'm going through a book and somebody who's teaching Sunday school for the first time and I don't give them anything to teach on, I just say, just teach them. Their hardest thing is trying to figure out what they should say, right? For me, if I'm going through something already, it's just what I'm going to teach next. And so I think we have to think through it in that fashion, that God has already given us something to do. He's given us a purpose. He's given us his word. And that gives us a direction where other people are lost. They waste so much time finding themselves. So he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting teaching, isn't it? He first says, don't think I came to abolish the law. I think 90% of the Christians out there think that he is there to abolish the law. That's why they don't teach Old Testament stuff in many churches. Many people think, well, you know, these laws, they're not really important. Aren't they, though? Why does God spend so many pages talking about them? So then what is the purpose of them? Are they not to guide us? Are they not to just supposed to give a little bit of insight into the mind of God? Even if we read and we say, yeah, I eat pork, and the Bible, the, this part says that that's unclean, what was the purpose of that? Was it truly just for dietary reasons, or was it to describe the intensity of what God considered to be holy and what he didn't consider to be holy? Was it meant to impress on the mind that God was serious about holiness and cleanliness? It was meant to make 
let's be honest, are ignorant people understand the gravity of approaching God. It was meant to say there's no area of life that is not governed by God's holiness, whether that be food, whether that be sexuality, whether that be parenting, whether that be commerce, whether that be war, whether that be love. It wasn't meant to be ignored. It's not meant to, when you read Revelations or when you read Leviticus, you're supposed to say, yeah, I can skip this chapter. But that chapter is important. When you see the sacrifices, shouldn't you think of Christ? When you see how detailed the laws of worship are, shouldn't you consider that these are the same laws that in some ways God gave to Abel and Cain, and Cain said, I'm going to bring a plant. And Abel sacrificed what God has to add is for. It should bring that into mind, right? All these things. But then he says something else. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people say, well, that's just in the Old Testament. Show them these verses. Right? Show them these verses. You know, y'all stands against homosexuality. That's just what they said in the Old Testament. That's just what Moses said. But Jesus said something different. Did he? Then what does it mean when it says your righteousness got to exceed the Pharisees? What does that mean? You tell me. What does that mean? The book of Romans and I've been learning about this because I'm going to teach about it in Sunday school. It's called justification. And justification is when God declares us to be righteous. But do you know that justification doesn't make us righteous? It's just God declaring us to be righteous. And there's a huge understanding for us to make sure that we understand that even though God declares us righteous, he didn't make us all of a sudden be as great as he is. What makes us righteous? It's Christ's righteousness, not my righteousness, right? Because Christ saved me, I don't get to just hold my chest up and say that I'm greater than anybody else. It's God. If it wasn't for the word of God, I would not be saved. And that's supposed to inflict on us a humility. And that is the difference between us and Catholicism who say, yeah, God not only made you righteous, says you're righteous. He made you righteous. You're better. And you can add to your righteousness by doing these works. And that's why a pope or an archbishop can be arrogant because they really think that there is something different in them than somebody else. That's the difference between real faith and fake faith. Amen? We're in there. Good evening, everybody. This thing be killing me up here. I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> um, today, I want to pray about. Um, let's have us pray about state leaders. Uh, we prayed about city leaders, so let's pray about state. God continue to uh, use them as he sees fit and that his will be done in us. And I will close. We'll have like two people praying.
But I'll wait till someone else prays. I said too. Before we continue in prayer, we just lift up um, the leaders of our state. We look at the senators. We look at the judges. We look at our governor. We know that you appointed each one of those to their role, Lord, and you appointed them for your purpose. And we know that through them you are continuing your purpose in our state. We ask that you continue to just um, influence them, to use them as you see fit, Lord, that um, you can continue to do your will in our state, Lord, as um, a lot of the laws come from them and a lot of how things are conducted in our state comes from them. And um, We've seen how um, the, the world wants to use these individuals to do their means, to pass things that are contradictory to your will and what you think is good, Lord, and um, to do their own thing, but we are not surprised by this. We know that this is what the world will do. But we ask that you continue to just use the people in their lives who are saved to be a witness to them, to um, continue to just give them the gospel that they need to hear, Lord, and continue to just work in the lives of these individuals and use them to continue your mission, continue to um, have them influence each and every one of their areas that um, it'll allow your people in those areas to continue to um, spread the gospel there and continue to do your work. In your name we pray. Amen.